reminder of where we've all been. We were all blind, but now we see. Amen to that. If you would, turn to Numbers chapter 7. As we continue on with our sermon series in Numbers, I hope uh, that you were blessed by chance last week. I know that we were, and I, I hope that uh, you were able to come uh, for our spring renewal uh, Sunday through Tuesday nights and, and hear a word from, sorry, Oren just caught my attention and he's chewing on a spoon and I you can't help but laugh. But anyway, uh, I hope that you were blessed. Chance brought some incredible words, um, just an, some incredible words of encouragement, some incredible words of challenge about pursuing the glory of God and then resting in his sovereignty, resting in his ability to save. Um, just an incredible time for us just to be refreshed as we walk into spring and, and into summer eventually. Um, but uh, just some timely messages, and I'm, I'm very thankful uh, for him and for his wife, Cindy, for, for letting us borrow him. Um, continue to pray for Cindy. Uh, he shared this with some of you. Um, I don't remember if he shared it on Sunday morning or not. Cindy uh, last year had breast cancer, and on the 26th of February had some major reconstructive surgery done, and um, the fact that she let us borrow Chance right after that, I just can't even get over um, but she's a, an incredible lady as well. And so continue to keep that family in your prayers. I know that they would appreciate that. Um, and let me say this word as well. I, I am incredibly blessed uh, to call you my church family. Uh, I called Chance and asked him to come. And uh, Chance just uh, was overwhelmed by how much you guys loved on him and blessed on him and Nathan, the same way Nathan Hammett came and did music for us, and Nathan said the same thing, and my family always says the same thing when they come. And uh, Let me just say this. Not all pastors can invite other people in and know that their church is going to love on them. Uh, in fact, Chance was telling me that the last time that he did a revival, he walked in knowing that he was not going to be liked. Um, and because the pastor was not well-loved in that church at that time. And I, my heart broke. But it swelled with pride, um, which maybe pride is a bad thing to have, but um, to know that uh, you are a wonderful church uh, to us. Um, certainly we have things that we can uh, improve on, like any of us. And we have things that God's working on, as he is all of us. Um, but uh, let me just say uh, a word of encouragement as your pastor um, that God has done some great things here and he's continuing to do some great things here and binding us together as a family. Um, and I, I am certainly thankful for that this morning. All right, let, hopefully by now you have found Numbers chapter 7. Just as a reminder of where we've been, we've been looking at this book of Numbers asking ourselves, how do we respond to a holy God? How do we respond to this God who has saved us but this, and this God who is full of grace and mercy, but this God who is also holy and cannot stand to be around sin and will judge it someday? How do we respond to God? And we've seen early in the book, uh, as in chapter 1 with the census, that we can respond with confidence because we have a God who fulfills promises. We can respond with confidence because we know that God has 
uh, put us exactly where he wants us, that he's given us the gifts that we are to have, that he has put us with the family that we're supposed to have, that all of those things fall under his sovereignty, and we're thankful for that and, and can have confidence in that. Couple Three weeks ago, we looked at how we, as to, in response to a holy God, must ourselves be holy. We must separate from sin those things which God says we ought not to do and to do those things which God says we should do. In the same way that we should separate ourselves from a culture which increasingly says that what is right is wrong and what is wrong is actually right, we should separate. Not that we should go into being uh, in a convent or, or walling ourselves off, but rather we take a stand and say, no, this is what the Word of God says, and on here I will place my trust and I will stand firmly on this rock. And so we, we separate ourselves from that way, and we separate ourselves towards God. Then two weeks ago, before chance came, we looked at blessing, how God blesses us, and how we receive that blessing. This week we look at how we respond to a holy God in terms of giving. As we look at chapter 7 and the gifts of the people for the worship at the temple. So if you would, would you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word this morning. We won't read all of chapter 7, but we're going to read the beginning of it. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils, the chiefs of Israel, heads of their father's houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, who were over those who were listed, approached and brought their offerings before the Lord, six wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for every two chiefs and for each one an ox. They brought them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord said to Moses, Accept these from them that they may be used in service of the tent of meeting and give, to the, and give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. So Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two wagons and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. Four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Moriah according to their service under the direction of Ithmar the son of Aaron the priest. But to the sons of Koath he gave none because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. And the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed, and the chiefs offered their offering before the altar. And the Lord said to Moses, They shall offer their offerings one chief each day for the dedication of the altar. He who offered his offering the first day was Nashon the son of Amminadab of the tribe of Judah. And his offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering and for sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Amenadab. Let us pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we as a people, we as a church, Father, let us desire you. Let us desire your presence. Let us desire your glory. 
Let us desire your word, that it may change us, that it may transform us into the image of Christ. Father, we pray that as we read over this word, that you would put it deep into our hearts, or that we would understand it in a way that can only happen because of your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would use me as an instrument, a tool of your grace. Lord, I, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to bring. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would work through me for your glory, for your name. That we may hear clearly from you. We pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Numbers chapter 7 is the longest chapter in the Bible except for Psalms 119. Some of you heard the beginning of that and you went, oh, pastor's wrong, it's Psalms 1, uh-huh, except for Psalms 119, okay? It is a long chapter and it is made up primarily of repetition. Once you get to chapter 12, what you see is 12, uh, 12 times the same offering being made by each tribe. And so it is a long, long chapter filled with lots of repetition. And so therefore, as microwave Christians, we tend to look at it and go, okay, why is this here? But this is an incredible chapter about how we are to respond to him. It's an incredible chapter that reminds us of several things. And so let me, before we dig into this, let's go through some background. First, we need to understand, or, or you probably should be aware that chapter 7 actually probably takes place before chapter 1. Now, that may not not make a lot of sense to you, but this was actually a fairly common thing in Hebrew writing, that it's not always exactly in chronological order. In this case, it's not, because if we were to read the book of Numbers in chronological order, in terms of chapters 1 through 6 and then verse 7, we would not understand the depth of chapter 7. Because chapter 7 talks about gifts of leaders. And if we had not read chapter 1, we would not have known who those leaders were. Okay, The census, chapter 1, introduces us to those guys. It tells us why those guys are important. And so that when by the time we get to chapter 7, we have a connection with them. They don't just appear out of nowhere. And in turn, we see that Uh, The gifts were given to the Levites for a specific need. Now, if you have not read Exodus, Leviticus, or uh, chapter 3, you would not understand why those gifts were important. You would just kind of be like, okay, they gave gifts. But understanding the depth of what the Levites were doing as they were assigned by family to carry different parts of the temple and of the things in the temple then we understand the gifts a little better for example we understand that the Kothites were to carry the holy things they were to carry the ark of the covenant they were to carry the altar they were to carry the lampstand and the table of showbread that were all inside they were to carry all the holy things and those things were either to be carried on your shoulder or in your hands or they were to be carried by basically poles that were ran through links or or loops on the sides of the altar or the covenant, and then those poles were carried on the shoulder. And so we understand that when these gifts are handed out, the oxen and the wagons, 
that none were given to the Kothites because they weren't supposed to use carts and oxen. They were to carry them by their hands. By the way, there's a quick connection here to 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, you'll remember, David is bringing the altar back in. And what does he use? He uses an ox and a cart. And because of that, there is a consequence. The cart stumbles. It, it begins to falter. The ark begins to slide out. A gentleman reaches up to steady it. And when he touches the ark, he dies. And David sees the consequence of not obeying the word of the Lord, not obeying the will of the Lord. And so no ox, no carts for the Kothites. So we understand the gifts a little bit better because we, we have chapters 1 through 6 before chapter 7. So all of these things happen beforehand, okay? Second thing we need to remember as we go into chapter 7 is we need to remember the salvation. And what I mean by the salvation is the exodus. If you go back to Exodus chapter 12, you'll see a recounting of the exodus, the actual leaving of Egypt. For those of you that may not remember or may not be familiar with the story, the people of Israel found themselves in slavery to Egypt. They had nothing. There was horrible conditions. They called out to God, and God sends the man Moses. And Moses speaks on behalf of the Lord to Pharaoh and to the people of Israel. And after a series of plagues, of disasters that happen on the, on the country of Egypt, Pharaoh says, get out. The last of those, by the way, being the death of the firstborn. The last plague was the death of the firstborn, and that happened across the nation except for to those households where the blood of the lamb was put over the doorpost. And where the blood of the lamb was over the doorpost, the angel passed over, and the plague that plague did not come to that house. That's where Israel gets the Passover. Okay? That's where that meal comes from. And there's all kinds of symbolism that I, we don't have time to get into this morning, but it's an incredible picture of salvation. But that happens, and Pharaoh says, get out. I, we don't want to see you anymore. And the people of Israel, they, they jump up, and man, they're making their way out. But on their way out, something incredible happens. On their way out, the people of Egypt are like, we don't ever want you to come back. So they begin to pile on top all of this stuff. The Israelites go and say to, to the families of Egypt, and they're like, hey, we don't have anything. And they're like, here, here's a tent, here's gold, here's clothes, here's shoes, here's jewels, here's everything you need. Please don't come back. You guys are horrible. Okay, like they just want them gone. And so this people, these these slaves who have nothing are showered with stuff. Showered with what what God later calls the spoils of war that they did not earn, but that God earned for them. He pours he pours the wealth of Egypt onto Israel as they leave. Now, as they leave, eventually Pharaoh changes his mind and he chases them with an army. And some of you may know the story. They come to the Red Sea. They're trapped between the army and the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. They cross the nation of Israel with Moses, crosses over on dry land. As they are being followed by the army, God brings the sea back in and completely destroys their enemies. And Egypt, or sorry, Israel is free. Israel no longer has anyone chasing them. Israel no longer is under the bondage of slavery. They are on their own. And they are free. They have been saved. So we remember, we need to remember that story of salvation. We also need to remember Sinai. Now, at the time of chapter 7, they are still encamped 
at Mount Sinai. Why is Mount Sinai special? Well, again, if you go back to Exodus 19, and actually I'm going to turn there and read just a bit for you. But if you go back to Exodus 19, we're told that God leads the people to this mount. It says there in verse 1 of chapter 19, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So not only do we remember this exodus, not only do we remember the salvation that God had given them, but we must remember the importance of what happened at Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God formalizes the relationship that he had with the people of Israel. He promises them blessing. He promises them protection. He reminds them of the salvation that had already happened. And he calls them into obedience. At this point, it is formalized that they are his people and that he is their God. It had been promised, it had been spoken of from Abraham through Isaac through Jacob. And now we see the formal agreement. God didn't just save them, he adopted them. Think about that for a moment. He didn't just save them, he adopted them. It wasn't just a rescue mission. It was a matter of family. And so we contemplate these things as we go into chapter 7. I want those to be in your mind as you think about how the people of Israel respond to that. Because when we come to chapter 7, these things had happened maybe four months, maybe as late as six months in the past. These were recent events for them. These weren't long ago stories that none of them remembered. These weren't long ago stories that none of them had ever lived through. They had experienced it. They knew of it. And it is to those experiences, to the salvation that they had seen with their own eyes, and to the relationship that God had called them into that we see chapter 7. What do we see first here in chapter 7? First we see the gifts of leadership. The gifts of leadership. And when I say gifts of leadership, I don't mean the gift of leadership. I mean the gifts that the leadership brought. We see these 12 guys who had been put in charge of each of their tribes. And they see a need. They see a need. They were in a special, special position to have heard the word of God. They were in a special position to see what was going on around them. They were in a special position to know what was the work being done? And so they give specific gifts for specific needs. The leadership of Israel gives specific gifts 
for specific needs. They give wagons, six wagons, and 12 oxen. Now, for some of us, that sounds like an odd gift. 12 wagons, or sorry, six wagons and 12 oxen. But basically what they did was they gave moving dance. In a contemporary setting, they gave moving dance. That's what these were. Think about that for a minute. Because what the Levites had been tasked to do, the Levites, remember in, from previous sermon, the Levites had been told, some of you are going to carry the holy things, some of you are going to carry the coverings of the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle in all its glory is still a tent. So it has all these coverings, all these things that make it a tent. So you're going to carry those things. And then you, that family over there, you guys are going to carry the scaffolding. You're going to carry the poles and the pegs and all of the things that keep the tent erect. And so the leadership sees this. They see and know and understand the job that must be accomplished. And so they give the moving vans. They say, you guys aren't going to be able to do this on your own. You guys need some help here to accomplish the task which God had given you. And so we as leadership, we as on behalf of the people, we're going to make sure this happens. So we need to see specific gifts for specific needs. We also need to understand that it's expensive gifts for poor people. Specific gifts for specific needs, but also expensive gifts for poor people. Remember, Israel for generations upon generations, had been a people of slaves. They owned nothing. They had nothing. Now God had, in His providence and in His sovereignty, had showered the people of Israel with the wealth of Egypt. But you got to remember, these 12 guys were giving out of what they had. They weren't looking to the whole people and saying, hey, we're going to take... These guys had given their own stuff. And it wasn't just an ox and a cart. It was a moving van. Can you imagine that? Like, can you imagine our deacons coming to the church and saying, we see a need and here's 12 moving vans, here's 12 vehicles. We've, we've gathered, we've talked together and this is what we want to do on the behalf of the church. That's a, that's a heck of a gift. Okay, that's a big deal. By the way, deacons, don't we don't need moving vans. Okay, but they saw this need and they went for it at their own expense. They did not give lightly. They did not give second best. They did not give out of their surplus. They gave sacrificially. They gave as leaders should give. That hits home for some of us especially me as I've read this chapter this week. How do we as leaders, deacons, how are we leading the way? Not just in terms of our finances, but in terms of our time, in terms of our gifts and our talents. How are we leading the way? We are especially gifted to see needs that others don't. We're especially gifted to know needs that others can't know. 
how do we lead? Not only do we see the leaders, so first we see the leadership and the gifts that they bring. Secondly, we see the gifts of the people. We see the gifts of the people. So we go through these six or these 12 oxen and these six wagons, and then we have a record of each tribe. We have a record of each tribe bringing a gift. The one that we read together was of Nishan, of the tribe of Judah, and he brings the gift of Judah, and they are all equal. As you read through these next 12, pa- or these next 12 little passages, what you're going to see is each tribe brings the exact same gift. Why record that? Wouldn't it have been simpler? Wouldn't it have been simpler just to say each tribe brought the same thing? Here is what they brought, and then here is the total of all they brought. Wouldn't that have been the way you and I would have written it? I wouldn't have wanted to write all that out. I wouldn't have wanted to write it over and over and over again, just changing the names out. I'm lazy. And frankly, my handwriting's bad. And so it would be easier for me just to have written it once. But praise the Lord, God does not waste a word in his word. None of this is frivolous. It is all for value. So why? Why record these offerings separately? Why record them over and over? Two things we see. Two things we see here. One, each tribe was equal. Each tribe was equal. Sure, the tribe of Judah goes first. Sure, they're the tribe of kings. David is going to come from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is going to come from the tribe of Judah. It had been prophesied. And uh, man, I hope someday we get to go back to that. It had been prophesied already. Jacob had already declared it. That they were it. And yet their gift is the same as everyone else's gift. Sure, Reuben was the firstborn. He was the one that was supposed to get all of the blessing. But his gift is the same as the other 11. Sure, the sons of Joseph, they were a special tribe. They were a tribe of honor. And yet their gift is the same as everybody else's gift. Then you have... You know, the opposite of Naphtali. Most people can't even pronounce his name. But his gift is the same. Each tribe was equal. Before the throne of God, before the altar, there was no preference. Each had equal access to worship. Each had an equal stake. And the Lord that they served, he represented all of them. He had saved all of them. He had brought all of them into a relationship with him. One did not earn it while the other did not. One did not do better and the other do worse. And so they all brought equal gifts. Second, Not only was each tribe equal, but each tribe was united. Each tribe was united. They did not try to outdo one another in gifts for the sake of outdoing one another. They wanted to show a unity. That they had been called into this relationship together. 
They had been called into this journey together. They knew what laid before them. It had been told to them from generations beyond generations that eventually God would take them to the promised land. And they knew that's where they were headed and they were in it together. And so the offerings are repeated to show equality, to show a unity between these 12 groups of people who served one God, the God of their salvation, the Father of their nation. So how does this attach to us? How do we bring this to us then? We see Israel coming and responding to a holy God through their gifts and through their offerings. We see them in equality, we see them in union. How does that apply to us? Well, to go back to the reason that we're studying this book, to serve a holy God, we must understand the importance of giving as worship. We must understand the importance of giving as worship. The Lord has blessed each one of us in amazing ways, not equally. To some of us, he has given nickels. To some of us, he has given dimes. To others, he has given pennies. But he has blessed each one of us. And beyond all of the tangible blessings that we could ever think of, we must remember our salvation. We remember the cross where he died and he bled, where he gave his life to pay consequences that you and I could not. But we remember not only that he saved us, we remember that he called us, that he adopted us. No longer are we enemies of God, but now we are his children, sons and daughters of the Most High. He has showered upon us blessings which we did not earn, nor could we have ever. His presence in our midst is the most valuable thing we have. And out of that blessing, out of those gifts, out of those things that he has given us to take care of for a time, he calls us to use those in service to the kingdom. To use those gifts and those talents and our time in service for his glory. That looks different for each one of us looks different how we do that, but we are all called to take part. It is part of our worship. It's part of our natural response to Him. Not only do we understand the importance of giving as worship, we understand the importance of unity in giving and in worship. We understand the importance of unity. The world... The world sees enough chaos. The world sees enough dysfunction. The world sees enough backbiting. They desperately need to see a people of unity. Jesus says himself that they will know you by how you love. 
Now, as family, we have said this before, and I'll say it again. As family, there are times when we will disagree. I'm sure that if you, as you have lived with a family, as you have uh, had relationships, that you did not always agree. If, if that is not your case, then you need to come to my family. We, there are times you don't agree. There are times that you don't see things equally. There are times that you don't agree on what color the carpet should be. There are times that you don't agree on what songs we should sing. There are times that we don't agree on how we should tackle this problem or that issue. But at the end of the day, we must remember unity. That doesn't mean, by the way, that there are times that we don't stand up and say, no, this is absolutely right. When we look at the word of God and there is no gray area and we stand upon it, the color of the carpet, by the way, is not one of those. But there are times for the church to say, no, this is, this is right and this is wrong and to make that division. But as a whole, on things that honestly are secondary or tertiary or somewhere farther down that line, we must value unity. Unity in our worship, unity in our giving, not, by the way, that we give the same thing. My pastor used to say, we are not called to equal gifts, we are called to equal sacrifice. As we look at the people of Israel, we must understand that we are all together in this. He is calling us to great things for the kingdom of God. Let us join in that. Lastly, to serve a holy God, and this is next slide, but to serve a holy God, we must understand the presence of God as our most valuable possession. At the end of chapter 7, after all the gifts had been given, after all had been accounted for, in verse 89 it says, And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. All that God gives us is Moses... Moses stands there before the ark. What thoughts must have been going through his head? He had just received all these gifts, and now he's standing before the ark of the covenant, and he hears the voice of God coming from the mercy seat, that place which symbolized from where God's grace came from, how God was covering the sins of Israel, how he had called them into relationship, how he had provided for them. What a humbling thing that must have been. So too, brothers and sisters, though we talk about giving today, we must understand that we, when we stand before the throne of God, that it is the most precious thing that we have. For those of you that didn't read the newsletter, and this was not intentional, but for these two things to tie together, but I talked in there about our passions, what we value. Jesus shares two stories about the kingdom of God. Specifically, he says that in one that it is like a treasure hidden in a field and a man stumbles upon it and he sells everything that he has so that he can buy that field knowing that that treasure is there. The second story is much like it. It's 
the man stumbles upon and finds in the, the market a pearl of great worth. And he sells everything he has because he knows that pearl is more valuable than all of it. Jesus says this is the kingdom of God. My question to us, first question to us is what happens what happens if that man later figures out that it's fake? What if that man figures out that he sold everything for fool's gold? What if he, sell, he finds out that he sold everything for ceramic or glass and it's worth nothing? It would be devastating. It would wreck his life. He has gotten rid of everything. So my second question is, which, does your life would your life be devastated? Would your life be devastated without Christ? Or would you shrug your shoulders and go, well, I guess that means I don't have to wake up early on Sunday anymore. Would you shrug your shoulders and go, well, on to the next thing? Or would you look at your life and go, this is a waste. Paul says we are to be pitied. If there is no resurrection, we are to be pitied more than anyone. Can you say that of your life? Can you say it's what I value more than anything? And my life reflects that. The choices that I've made, they make no sense without Christ. The places I've gone make no sense without Christ. Jobs that I've taken make no sense without Christ. Praise God that we know that it is not fool's gold. That the gospel is real. Praise God that we can have confidence in its truth. That we can have confidence in Christ. Praise God that he has saved us and adopted us. May our lives reflect that. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. We're just going to have a time for you to respond. How do you respond to a holy God who has saved you? How do you respond to a holy God who has adopted you? Maybe this morning you need to confess that you've never sought a relationship with him. And this morning is the time for that. Maybe this morning you need to confess that your life Though you have been saved, your life maybe lately or, or for, so, for a while has not looked like a life that is impacted by Christ, that does not look like a life that values Him as the most valuable thing we can experience. And you need to ask for forgiveness of that. Maybe this morning you just need to worship because you are reminded this morning of your salvation. Then I would ask that you would do that this morning. Respond in the way that God would have you. Let me pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you. You are a wonderful God who gives to us in great abundance. Lord, we see it in our lives. We see it in our families. We see it in, in the, our homes. We see it in, the, in our everyday life in ways that we often just frankly ignore reminded of that song that says I sing your I, I sing your blessing I sing your worship because it's your air that fills my lungs 
Father, I pray as a church that we would respond to you this morning. That we would respond as one people, one family, one body. To the God who saved us and to the God who adopted us. Pray this in the holy name of Jesus Christ.